Hi, Leslie. Thank you so much for being with us today. We're in the Masters of CX podcast with Chattermill. We just want to begin quite simply just to understand where you come from, what got you into CX, what got you, got you into writing with the mission of helping your audience and, and your customers write better for an online audience. And yeah, if you could just share about, a bit about yourself and uh, how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I'm the owner of my company. It's called e, it's e I formed this company in the late 1990s because that's when we used to say e-something. And my, our mission is to help people learn to write well at work. And in about, about 2000, 2002, we started focusing on helping frontline customer service agents write better email because that was a period of great transition. People who had been on 1-800 phone numbers for their whole career were being asked to switch to writing email. And as you can imagine, that switch was difficult. And as you can also imagine, the number of channels, written customer service channels they've had to absorb over these many years has just been one after another. So it was uh, letter and phone, letter, phone, fax, <laughs> phone, fax, email, and now we are email, chat, social, text, and soon to come, all the hybrids of those channels supported by bots and other AI, uh, video supported by chat transcripts or video transcripts is just a real hybrid. But if you look at the last 15 years or so, a person who's communicating with customers has had to go from being someone who might jot a note down on a post-it to someone who can write elegantly and clearly. In this wonderful journey, our company has helped large international brands improve the writing skills of their frontline customer service agents, sure, but also integrate the way frontline customer service writers use the brand's voice. So our work has involved uniting two parts of the company that often know nothing about each other, the people who define the brand voice in marketing and communications, and the soldiers, the writing soldiers who every single day use that brand voice or should use that brand voice to communicate with customers who are either unhappy or fully in love with the company and wanting to do more. I like to think of my company as one that can help with any aspect of written communication that is defining the brand voice, documenting it in brand voice guides, managing the knowledge base that customer service agents draw on, and really, as a, a frontline civil rights issue, we want to endow the frontline customer service writers with the responsibility and the power to write candidly to customers. That's amazing. I think there's no better mission. I think a pillar of customer experience is communication. If you can't get there, it doesn't matter your intentions and everything. So I think we set a great tone for our conversation today. And it'll just be like in that, on that note of, of uh, customer voice and the brand of uh, customer experience that a company has, it'll be interesting to hear about you. Like, how do you view customer experience and what matters to you most when a company needs to build one or scale one? Okay. I want, I want to try a metaphor on you this morning. I think a good customer experience is a lot like a good romantic relationship. So the worst romantic relationships, the person you're flirting with 
seems really attractive during the flirting. And then when you have a romantic relationship, the attraction dies because the person is, was faking <laughs> during the flirting period. So I want to think about customer experience in this metaphor as attraction, the first attraction in marketing, the getting to know you in shopping or comp comparing, the committing to dating in purchase, and then all of the communication and consistent experience you have as the years of happy unity go on and on. So that's the metaphor. A good customer experience is like a good romantic relationship. It lasts throughout the I saw you across a crowded room to the 50th wedding anniversary all the whole time. That, that's amazing. I think there's no better way for us to think about this. And like everything, it's, it needs to be human. It needs to come from both sides. You need to have empathy. Again, like from our conversations in the past with top CX people like yourself, I think empathy is a clear pattern that we've observed as a key pillar, right? And our audience loves some practical examples and some processes so they can learn from them and try to adapt to their own problems that they must be facing in, that, in the sphere of customer experience. How do you think about actually like enforcing this metaphor throughout the company or throughout even just a simple interaction between an employee of a company and the customer directly? Indeed. I'll talk a bit about how do we create that kind of harmonious lifelong love I described. I think the customer does not really understand what's happening in the company that allows for such a loving, committed relationship. But we do, you and I do, and the people listening to the podcast do. What I believe in that allows a customer, a, a sincere and loving customer experience is harmony and cooperation between teams behind the scenes. And again, I'll give you an example that comes from the world that I work in. Again, my mission is to help frontline customer service agents communicate well. If you think about the org chart of most companies, a frontline customer service agent is reporting to somebody who manages the contact center, perhaps. And if you keep stepping up the org chart, the corporate ladder, there are lots and lots of other teams and groups that must cooperate so that frontline customer service agent can sustain a great customer experience. So if you make a, if let's say your company sells a product that fits in a cardboard package, they sell something that, like that. <laughs> you need the package designers to prepare the packaging for this uh, bottle of antacid tablets <laughs> and you need the marketing people to make uh, marketing messages that are genuine that customers can trust and you need of course the warehouse the distribution the manufacturing all works together and know about each other's roles so that when a customer says i received i bought a bottle of these tablets and they were all crushed the frontline customer service agent not only knows what to do but is trusted by all the teams so that they can answer honestly and solve the problem. So the cooperation that enables this great customer experience is happening when the various columns in the organizational chart are, are shattered somewhat and the teams are collaborating most. 100%. I think it's a mix of being result-oriented and having that compromise for the rest of the team and what every, what every team needs to accomplish. 
and making sure you're swimming towards the same uh, destination. Mm-hmm. How do you think about aligning in terms when we talk about writing and your expertise, the whole idea is empathy and the psychology behind it and understanding. Is there is there an advice that you would that you would uh, like share with our audience about using those mental models almost to improve the incentive the, uh, the way in which companies incentivize their employees to care about customers and how customers can incentivize the whole company to put them first? Let's take the skill of empathy, which we certainly have been talking about a lot more during 2020, the year of the pandemic, than we were before. Though, of course, we've always uh, talked about expressing empathy. We've felt the need for it acutely this year, certainly. Empathy is not magic. And when it comes to writing skills, empathy is a skill we can teach. It is a, a, to express empathy, we gather a, a predictable set of words and use them in a predictable way. It really is not magical. So for example, if you tell me that you're really angry that you purchased that bottle of antacid tablets and they were all broken, then I can say, I understand why you're angry. You were probably counting on using one of those tablets to feel better right away. This is an extremely teachable and learnable skill. The skill of expressing empathy isn't magical. What is magical and what's extremely rare is the trust that upper level people have for frontline customer service agents to allow them to express empathy because there are competing interests in the contact center. And one is, the one that the frontline agents hear loudest is protect us from risk and protect our company from exploitation by customers who just want refunds. They hear protect, they hear policy, and they hear no, tell the customer no. All of those messages that the frontline agents are hearing, those are empathy killers. So I don't, think, I don't think we should be concerned about people's talent or skill at composing an empathetic message. That's not very hard, it's permission that we really have to worry about. And it's also the other thing we have to worry about that prevents frontline customer service agents from expressing empathy is the corrosive conditions of their work life. So it's, it's a bit ridiculous to say to someone, hey, you earn $11 an hour and I expect you to answer 25 emails to customers per hour. And while you're doing that in this little gerbil wheel that you live in, I also want you to be really empathetic. <laughs> yeah, it just won't work. Crazy, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the empathy itself is an immensely teachable skill, and also, people can frontline customer service agents can express empathy even when they're not feeling it through and through. We do this all the time with other types of pleasantries. You ask me how my weekend was, and I ask after your father-in-law and. Do I deeply care about your father-in-law? I don't know the guy. He could be great. But we can teach people to express empathy, but we cannot overcome the work conditions that inhibit their empathy. Enough said there. I think I think it's very clear. Thank you for sharing also. Like I think these problems are ones that many people are facing. If we understand those problems, maybe we can work around them and no, I think I thank you for the clarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of skill sets that we touched on a few there, 
It would be great to just ask you, how do you view the necessary skill sets for someone to excel in customer experience? I think a person who excels professionally in customer experience has to have a magical mindset in a way to both be inside and outside at the same time. And to be able to sustain that duality for a long time, like a whole career. So I need to be inside my organization so I know how it works, how our market works, how our customers behave and how our product or service functions. But I must always be able to flip and be outside and looking in at us. And this is difficult. We, if Our whole world is working on a vaccine right now, but I think we need a vaccine. To be great in customer experience, you need the vaccine of insider eyes so that you will always be able to see your work your products offerings and your place in your customer's life as an outsider. So we have lots of professional mechanisms like journey mapping, these kinds of things to refresh our ability to see our work from outside. But that's the deepest skill I think we need. Definitely. I, yeah. Balancing both is a, it's a great challenge. I think it's part like using your team to help you and being able to have that clear communication internally and, everyone doing what's necessary versus having those processes that should guide you to eliminate bias and make sure that you're getting the right type of insight. Fantastic. And yeah, we touched on the pandemic. I think it's a pity if we don't explore that a bit, a bit more. And just looking from what we've experienced in 2020 in our own businesses as professionals, from what we've observed of other businesses, a lot of people have been struggling through this period, obviously. And it has caused them to be very adaptable and very creative about how they service customers more. If there's one thing that the pandemic taught us is the fundamentals of business, one of which is putting your customers first. And uh, yeah, if, are there any, any stories that you would like to share about some creative responses by businesses and professionals that you've noticed? Yes, but I want to tell a really small story because I think this small story, this, it, it illustrates a larger story that we're seeing from uh, larger corporations. Uh, there's a restaurant in my neighborhood. It is really small. And I think it probably seats about 30 people. And it has been in the same location since I've lived in uh, this neighborhood. So it's at least 24 years. It's a super small space. And I'm sure they were one eyelash away from going out of business last April. I'm sure of it. Uh, but I must say that they uh, did three things that made a huge difference. One was they went from having an extremely small static website with almost no integrated social media activity to just being all over Instagram and post after post and really building community there. The second was they rented two food trucks. I know this because I know the owners. They didn't buy them because what is life? Who knows what's happening next? But they rented two food trucks. So I thought that was really a clever thing to do. And now they're, they're at two locations. Each one is about two miles away from the actual restaurant. And they're there on a schedule that they share in social media all the time. And the third thing was they have a competitor restaurant. This is delicious Italian food and it's right nearby. And they share delivery service now. 
they hired their drivers. They did, they're not, they, yes, you Uber Eats, et cetera, but they hire drivers, but this, the competitor is sharing the delivery service. To me, this is a great COVID story. Candidly, I don't know how their business is doing, but I think I, as an outsider, I can say that they've done all they possibly could have done to, to survive. And this, what do I observe? What's the takeaway from the story? Um, is that things that we used to take months and months of high level meetings to decide, companies are deciding quicker now. Yes. Should we allow remote work? Okay, yes, everyone will be 100% remote. So the quicker decision making, the creative use, uh, the creative view of your competition, I think that was something that I really admired as a COVID behavior, and the involvement in online communications. They should have been doing that before, but clearly when the time came, they changed how they were communicating. So I think that's a great COVID story of versatility, and I sure hope they survive. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing to hear. I think it's very inspiring for many entrepreneurs, for many uh, businesses to listen to stories like these, because it shows not only this, this creativity and everything, like they are both saving costs at the same time while opening sources of revenue. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people struggle with this duality of, ah, should I strive for more revenue or should I strive to cost cut? Mm -hmm. And it's hard. There's no right answer in a time like this. It's very tough to decide and deal with incomplete information and have to make these decisions on a whim sometimes. But yeah, it takes a lot of courage and it's very admirable to to hear these stories. I, this is my favorite part. <laughs> Can I ask you how, let me ask you a question about my story. I know that's funny. How do I know that they rented the food trucks? Can you guess? No idea. They shared it in social and they are, they are telling their story in a very transparent way, which is fascinating. And, and I think it's part of, it partly explains why their um, Instagram following has jumped so much. I don't have the numbers. It's grown faster than mine. So <laughs> a lot faster. So this is, they've been very transparent. And again, as a communicator, I think this is uh, wonderful and, and, and compelling. It's quite amazing. Compelling. You can't be transparent and say the county safety board had to close down our food truck because we had roaches in it. That's too much transparency. But if the story is okay and meaningful, they said, I know that they only rented the trucks because they shared that in Instagram. And they said, I think they also said, we'll be deciding it around Christmas time whether to continue. Mm. Wow, that's, that's fantastic. I think, see, there's an interesting point to dive into. Uh, in terms of channels of communication, right? You can use the power of writing and communication in many different medium, mediums and media. Are there any channels that, that, you, that you prioritize as a professional when you've been looking at experiences of businesses and stuff? Is, there, is social the best way to go about it? Is video the best way to go about it? Is like long-form content the best way to go about it? This is a big decision all companies have to make. If you think about customer service, which channels should I deliver customer service in? You have some competing perspectives and you have to take them all in and then make a reasonable decision. One is there are simple expectations all customers have about how they'll be able to contact you. And if you don't um, serve those, you're just being idiotic. So 
everyone expects a company to have a phone number. And I know that some big corporations go to great lengths to hide their phone number. I don't approve of that. Everybody expects you to have an email address. If you discover that your customers are having lively conversations about you in Facebook, you better make yourself available in Facebook too. So there are the channels that everyone expects you to have, which do include social. There are the channels where conversations may grow that you weren't predicting, and then you have to evaluate where, whether you can participate and, and how to participate. And then there's the company's responsibility not to spread itself too thin and to fail at all the channels. So I, these are competing. The expected channels, the channels where conversations organically grow and you need to join, and the responsibility you have to provide quality responses and quality content. So here you are, you've launched a podcast, and everyone knows that podcast development minutes, it's like a one to 10 ratio, or maybe it's one to 100, I don't know. The one minute of podcast recorded that you publish, you have spent many minutes. I certainly know that you thought about whether you could sustain the effort before you started the podcast. So I think sometimes we have to acknowledge to our customers that we are not participating in a, we are not offering service in a particular channel or that we are not publishing a particular type of content because we simply can't sustain it. However, may I go on a tangent here? As a person who uh, helps companies write better live chat, don't turn your live chat off when you're busy. That's terrible. If you're doing a great job with live chat, as, as you probably are, then rapidly your customers consider this an, a channel they can reach you. So they, they say you have a website, you have a phone number, you have an email address, and you're available for live chat. So the chat shouldn't be intermittent, it shouldn't disappear. It should be a, there just like your postal address is always in place. <sighs> <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Absolutely. I think it's very, it's a big challenge for companies to try to make that uh, customer service and live chat and everything as human as possible. Definitely something to learn from and, uh, and adapt during this time. Yeah. So I wanted to continue in this uh, sphere of writing with you and just hear about your expertise and how do you recommend people to go about writing uh, better copy, better, better scripts for video content or audio content and stuff like that, or live chat. And uh, yeah, and how do you go about editing yourself and recommendations for editing? So both in terms of production and editing to make sure that the content piece of what you're communicating is done and then we can jump into distribution. <laughs> okay, you've asked me the biggest question anyone has ever phrased in the world. So I'm going to, I'm going to separate it into some pieces. Right now, though, I have been talking a lot about the work the writing frontline customer service agents do. I'm going to step away from their writing life because they exercise rather fewer decisions than other type of workplace writers do. Frontline customer service agents respond to incoming queries all the time and therefore their writing world is a little bit narrower than yours is or than mine is. So now I'm taking everybody else in the whole wide world, people who write marketing copy, people who blog, people who write documentation. The best uh, advice I can give at a very high level for people who write this way is to, that they be able to imagine 
their readers' needs or to actually know their readers' needs to the extent that they can actually phrase their readers' honest questions about the topic. Okay, and to me, quality content answers readers' honest questions about the topic and the types of uh, blog posts and just marketing nonsense we often read online answer faux questions reader faux readers have about the topic these are the questions i want you to answer and i, I want you to ask pardon me and the writer says these are the questions i wish you would ask such as why is version two of my software so much better than version one right no the reader is not asking that the customer is not asking that the customer is asking what can i accomplish with your software not why is version two better than version one so this is a core relationship between writers and readers is that writers who create quality, meaningful information have a, a, a well-developed ability to imagine their readers or they actually know their readers and they're honest with themselves. The writers are honest with themselves about what their readers want or need to know about the topic. That's the source material. That's the Adam and Eve in the garden right there. Definitely. Amazing. Thank you for that. And in terms of distributing, do you believe there's a, a particular cadence that people should follow to generate those, those emotions that we were talking about uh, previously? Or is it, or should it be like more sparse or more natural as uh, human interactions are? Yeah, yeah. That's a very interesting question. I, this will be terrible hypocrisy. Talk, what I'm about to say about the newsletter, uh, newsletters, but so each type of publication has some implied public expectations about how often you'll receive it. So I say hypocrisy about newsletters because I publish a monthly newsletter that comes out eight times a year. <laughs> People who subscribe to newsletters expect them to come out on a, a regular schedule. People who follow others in social expect a blend of of spontaneous communication and predictable communication. So I think you, we should always know the assumptions of the channels. It was something that makes me so sad that sometimes my clients do is they say, I really want to publish meaningful content in Twitter and I want to give my followers what they're looking for from me. And then I ask them, how often are you publishing? They say twice a week. So that's just a total mismatch. No one expects two tweets a week to build a relationship. And then we all know, <laughs> and we're all oppressed by people who publish and publish and publish so often that no one has any passion for that amount of information. But knowing what the um, right amount is, I think is a matter of, another matter of the, that aware, writer's awareness of their own readers. So for example, if you follow someone, you have a, a great passion for the way they see the world, you might be perfectly happy reading three or four tweets per week from that person in normal times. But if there's an event, an event in, that happens that in their area of expertise, you want to hear from them a lot. If there's a conference, if there's a publication, you want to hear from them a lot. So it depends on uh, the, the voice of the publisher, the writer, and the, the, what the followers need. A hundred percent. Yeah, I think it does. I couldn't agree more. I think the subject matter also dictates a lot. It's not only the format that you carry out, it's the also region and the industry that you're operating in. All those things like differ. 
Mm-hmm. And it's a strategy, right? There's a positive and negative to almost every strategy. So, yeah, well, we, what a great idea to introduce the word strategy because, of course, you'd want to know what am I trying to accomplish, and, and then you'll have a much better idea of how often to publish. The the people I read online, I can't get enough of them. If I love the way they think, if their work inspires me, I rarely say your posts are too long. I don't say that. I so say, yeah. no, keep double it. Keep, keep, keep it coming. Keep it coming. <laughs> Think, what am I, the writer asks, the publisher asks, what am I trying to accomplish? And how are my readers behaving? What do I notice about what they do with my content? Can I give them more of that? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. I resonate with that so much. A hundred percent. And uh, now I'd love to talk about more uh, of learning resources. So the type of resources that you consume to keep uh, on top of your game, to keep learning so it could be in relation to cx it could be in relation to writing and copywriting and communication or it could be in relation to anything else that you think helps you develop empathy and helps you develop the persuasion and all these different skills that that i'm sure you build on all the time as a content creator yeah just if you could share like like the books that you recommend people the most the podcast that you recommend people the most and people that you admire okay i'm going to answer Uh, Your question, not with a particular book, podcast, or person, I'm going to answer your question with a community. And then I'm going to talk briefly about software. So I, just like all of us, have more than one professional community that I belong to. And I'm talking to you today about my work life and my passion in the customer experience and customer service community. But one of my other professional communities is the plain language community. And uh, plain language is the name of a communication movement that's probably almost 50 years old now, 45 years old. And it has the core of this communication philosophy is that readers are entitled to understand and act on written information. That's the core. And to support that core belief and all the writing behaviors that go with that core belief that readers are entitled to understand and act on what they read, there are many professional organizations around the world and there is uh, legislation laws, plain language laws at the federal level in many countries around the world. So here in the United States, I'm a member of the Center for Plain Language. I was their newsletter editor a few years ago. And I participate in this community domestically and internationally as well. Here in the United States, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Plain Writing Act of 2010. So 10 years with a federal law that says citizens are entitled to understand and to be able to act on the information their federal government publishes. This communication movement spreads out into all the professions. There's been tons of plain language work in le- uh, about legislation, about voting instructions. There's tons of plain language work in how to communicate about health in a way that people can understand, even though we often mock the legal profession. There are tons of plain language communicators in the law because they believe that a person who's involved in legal action has an an inherent right to understand. This is not an option. It's a a birthright. You are entitled to understand. So this community, for example, I'll give you another random and wonderful example. Who are some of the most prominent 
plain language communicators in science, the American Geophysical Union, of course, who would have known? So the American Geophysical Union is a professional organization for geophysicists. Geophysicists, they're not plain, right? <laughs> but this organization and the journals they publish are so committed to plain language that if you, a geophysicist, submit a scholarly journal article for publication, you provide an abstract that other geophysicists can read as well as a plain language abstract that other interested people can read. Both are required. Both. There, if, you, if a person who's listening to this podcast is interested in plain language, they will learn about the organization's in our country or in theirs, and they will also be able to learn about all the plain language practitioners. These are people like me and also people who study communication in an academic way, in a research-based way, to say, here's how we alter communication written by experts so that all the intended readers of the communication can understand and read it. So that's the community I'd like to offer more than anything is uh, the plain language community as it exists in governments around the world and as it exists amongst practitioners. Well, I'm so happy you brought plain language. I think it's very overlooked by, by customer experience as a field of study even. This idea of allowing customers to understand very clearly for example, issues nowadays that many companies have been facing, like hygienic issues that they need to make very clear to their customers that are being dealt with and like mobility issues and stuff like that. I think those are uh, huge lessons from the plain English community to espouse into these problems 100%. And as marketers and as customer experience professionals, understanding plain English can only help. Uh, succinct and uh, clear communication has never been more important. and definitely here to stay. Uh, I, wish, I wish it weren't called plain because I'm a word nerd and you are a word nerd, right? We both love language, but people, for example, geophysicists who hear the word plain, they may become frightened that we, you have to make your work simple or ignorant. And that is not what plain language means at all. I wish, I understand why the word plain is attached to this communication philosophy, but it, the word plain has some baggage. I wish maybe we had a different word. But the pairing that your reader is able to understand and act on and use what you've written, this is the most important. And you're absolutely right. Customer experience professionals should love plain language because if you're talking about building business and serving customers and gaining more customers, what does acting on the writing mean? It means buying, buying. So CX folks should love this movement. And also, as I mentioned, the research arm of the plain language community is methodical about documenting whether people can understand and act on a given piece of writing. Hundred percent. Yeah, couldn't. Uh, I think you you nailed it. Hundred percent. And it's something that we at Chatterman were very uh, big proponents of this of studying language as well. So our platform helps uh, analyze language for the purpose of improving customer experience. And I think it's almost like a microcosm. Studying language is almost like a microcosm for studying customer experience in general. Understanding the bottom up, like the use of words, the use of syntax, and everything to create an effect for clarity for uh, persuasion, and also the top-down approach of form and structure and how that can 
help help for example customers take action and help them understand something better or the use of metaphors and analogies and stuff to simplify complicated concepts mm -hmm. so i think those two i, th I feel like I'm so glad we had this conversation because I think it's something that people really need to spend more time looking at and understanding language from all its forms, top down and bottom up, and using that to their advantage and mastering both sides, which I know both of us like our students of. And yeah, just wanted to think that's a great note to to finish our conversation. If there's anything, is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with? Any piece of advice or or if if you'd like to share where they can find you or where they can check out your work. Yes, indeed. I do have a piece of advice on where you can check out my work. So you can always find me at my website, which is eWriteOnline.com. Um, you can always find me on Twitter or on LinkedIn. On Twitter, my uh, handle's easy to say. It's Leslie O, the letter O, not zero. I'm not Leslie Zero. I'm Leslie O. <laughs> um, you can also find me on LinkedIn Learning. I'm the instructor for six different writing classes on LinkedIn Learning. And the most recently published one, which came out in April 2020, is on plain language. So if our passion during this discussion has in, caused anyone to be curious about plain language, they can check out my LinkedIn Learning class on plain language, which I might like to mention. LinkedIn Learning has made hundreds of courses free during the pandemic. And my plain language course is one of the ones that's free during, uh, until March 2021. So that's nice to know. The other thing I'd like to end with, I want to leave people hopeful about building writing skills because this is a core belief of my entire profession. I have been a, essentially a writing teacher for my entire working life. And I do believe that people can change and develop their writing skills at any point in their career if they're willing and if they have authentic training experiences. So for most of us, a long career and a satisfying career involves one new and sometimes frightening writing responsibility after another. And so I hope people who are listening to me will hear, will say that woman who does writing teaching, she believes that people can build and gain writing skills. I don't believe good writers are born. I believe good writers are made. And even if you are a person who disliked writing in school and chose your profession. Maybe you chose IT technical support as a profession because you dislike writing. If life brings you writing responsibilities at work, you can meet those responsibilities in a way that satisfies you and your reader. A person isn't it, don't pin yourself to a table like a specimen. Believe that you can change and grow. I know it. This is my professional field and I know it. I see it all the time. Oh, thank you so much, Leslie. I'll take that advice to heart myself. Indeed. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people will. So I can't, we can't send uh, in a better note than this. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time, for all the insights you shared with us today, for the for the clarity and the gratitude that you're sharing all your experience with us today. Really it's absolutely it. my pleasure. I loved our conversation. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Thank you so much, Leslie. Okay. Bye-bye.